This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any sins to the Lord in privacy of your priesthood, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for the enlightenment that your word gives us, that it addresses every area of life, gives us information that we can apply to our relationships, to our friendships, to our families, our marriages, that on the basis of your word, we know that you have provided everything for us. You have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and you have given us everything uh, necessary for life and godliness. And, Father, it is through the study of your word that we learn what you have provided for us, and we see examples in your word of how to apply doctrine consistently in our lives. Father, now we pray as we study your word this morning, you would help us to understand the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John. We are still in 3 John, verse 1. 3 John, verse 1. 3 John comes... After Second John, Third John, verse one. To the uh, it begins the elder. This is the title that John has adopted for himself in his function as a pastor teacher. At this time, he is a pastor in Ephesus, and yet there are congregations outside of Ephesus in some of the smaller communities that he is pastoring. There was uh, one that he addressed in Second John, whereas Third John is addressed not to a congregation per se, but to an individual, Gaius. He says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, in the last two classes, in studying this passage, I spent some time, first of all, looking at the term the elder, that is, presbyteros, and its relationship to other words for pastor-teacher and how that describes one aspect of the total function of the, of the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher and the leadership of a pastor over a congregation. Last time, I focused on the fact that pastor-teachers, pastors need to be prepared for the ministry of, of uh, pastoring and teaching in a local congregation that just because a man possesses the gift of pastor-teacher 
and perhaps has certain natural abilities to speak and is fairly articulate. And just because he has sat in Bible class for many years and managed to learn many things does not necessarily qualify that individual to go to pastor a local church. There needs to be a higher standard. Now, when I concluded last week, I got a couple of questions uh, afterwards, and so I just wanted to tack on a few more thoughts before we go forward. First of all, as I have articulated from this pulpit many times and continue to do so, there has to be a high standard for what we expect from a pastor in terms of his preparation as well as his ongoing education. I realize that um, there are exceptions to those standards. I think it is mandatory that a man uh, learn the original languages. I went to Dallas Seminary, and for those of you who don't know the story, Dallas Seminary was founded by a musical evangelist by the name of Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer did not know the original languages. Chafer ended up being president of the seminary, even though that was not his original slot, and he ended up being the professor of systematic theology because the original individual that was supposed to teach systematic theology in the fall of 1923 when the school opened was a man named W.H. Griffith Thomas. And Griffith Thomas was taken to be with the Lord that summer, and so Chafer had no option. The Lord just sort of kicked him through that door, and he became the professor of systematic theology. And he became president of the seminary, although he was extremely reticent to do so. And through a series of events, the Lord confirmed rather quickly to him that that was his, uh, that was the Lord's will for his life. Uh, I think the story went that, that Chafer was being, was somewhat concerned whether he should be the president. So he prayed and he said, Lord, I have a decision to make and I need you to confirm this within the next uh, 24 hours. And uh, he wasn't being presumptuous, and Chafer was an extremely humble individual. But he recognized the fact that there are sometimes when we need to make decisions, and those decisions have deadlines, and we need we need some confirmation, some guidance quickly. He was in Europe at the time, and he was staying with an individual. And the next morning, this businessman told him, said, Well, I understand that your seminary is going to need a library, and since uh, Griffith Thomas has died... Uh, why don't you go to his his widow, and I understand she needs some money, so whatever she's asking for his library, you purchase it, and then I send me the bill, and I will reimburse you for that. And then that afternoon, a man came to him and said, well, I understand you're going to start a seminary. I was supporting uh, uh, Griffith Thomas financially, and since he's gone to be with the Lord, I still need to uh, give that money to the Lord's work, so I'll commit to, now this was in 1923, so this was a lot of money back then, I will commit to $1,500 a year for your uh, individual salary. So at that point, Dr. Chafer prayed, okay, Lord, that's enough. You, you made it clear. But Chafer was always aware of the fact that he did not know the original languages, and he considered that a tremendous weakness, which is why he made it a priority in those early years at Dallas Seminary that a man was to have four years of Greek and, and four years of Hebrew. Unfortunately, that's been watered down over the years and no longer uh, are his distinctives maintained. But 
Nevertheless, he recognized that was the standard. However, Dr. Chafer went on to write an eight-volume systematic theology, which is still one of the finest systematic theologies ever produced, and yet from a man who did not know the original languages. Now, he was an exception. Bill Gates, I understand, did not ever go to college. He's an exception. There are many others that ha- occur in history that become captains of industry, that become, go at the forefront of their particular uh, area of life without going through the standard procedures of qualification. But they are rare. They are exceptions. And there is a principle that you should write down and apply in every area of life. That is that you never make policy on the basis of exceptions because they are exceptions. You don't make policy in your personal life, your personal finances, uh, your social life, whatever it is, on the basis of exceptions. We always make policy on the basis of absolute, uh, on the basis of standards, and recognize the fact that there may be extenuating circumstances at time, at times that uh, where it, it uh, there are exceptions. Now, another point I want to make is that arrogance is the greatest threat to a pastor teacher. It's the greatest sin that pastors are are prone to fall prey to. And it also applies to the training of a pastor teacher. The greatest asset that a pastor teacher can develop spiritually is that of humility. And humility always starts in life through enforced humility. As a child, you're born with a sin nature, and hopefully your parents disciplined you, and as a parent you are disciplining your children to teach them to control that sin nature, that is enforced humility. As you, as you develop through enforced humility, you learn authority orientation, and if you become a believer and you are developing under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, then genuine humility will also develop. For a pastor-teacher in training, there is nothing that surpasses the academic discipline of the classroom. You're going to go through situations where you have a professor that teaches something you don't agree with, and you have to learn how to, how to handle that. You're going to be involved with students that uh, you may not agree with and who may be more legalistic than you are, and you have to deal with that. You have to go through classroom situations where you have to uh, write papers and present research papers and preach in class and various other things where you may think that you have solved some great theological problem only to be shot down by all of your classmates and a professor. Uh, That's really the place to float your crazy ideas and to learn how to think theologically is in the classroom, not in a pulpit. You have to learn to do that in a situation where you're writing papers and they're being graded and evaluated, and you get that opportunity for give and take, and that is a process of learning. Unfortunately, there are pastors that I have heard that say, well, you know, I really don't want to go to seminary. Why should somebody go to seminary? They're going to be faced with legalism. They're going to be faced with the possibility of being hit with false doctrine, something they don't agree with. Why waste your time? Number one, it's not a waste of time. Number two, you're always going to learn something even if it's by negation. Number three, um, most of the pastors that I have known that are, are have gone through seminary, many of them have not succumbed to the legalism or any of the other uh, negative things that take place there, but it has given us a tremendous education in what not to do and what the problems are that exist out there in uh, churchianity. 
So it is a place, the, the academic environment of a classroom is a place to learn many, many things. Third, I recognize the fact that there are many pastors who get into the pastorate without going through a seminary or Bible college. I'm not saying you have to go to a seminary per se. There are many fine men who get almost the same education by going through a, a Bible college or Bible institute. But to, there are also many who've never taken advantage of that. They're, they're a pastor somewhere, and they've never had any kind of formal training. Uh, what about those individuals? Should they quit and go to seminary? Not necessarily. We live in an incredible time today. You can go online and take numerous courses. You can go out and spend 70 or $80 and get a CD that has video lectures, of an entire course of first-year Greek or first-year Hebrew. There's no excuse for a pastor to not get the languages or to get some advanced training to go through ongoing or continuing education courses for a congregation to send him to things of this nature where he can get that ongoing training. And the fact that a pastor does not do that or or doesn't participate in those things is once again a sign of a lack of teachability and a spiritual gift inferiority complex. And there are so many ways that a pastor can pick up different things today, different tools, different skills, that there is virtually no excuse for someone not taking advantage of these opportunities. Therefore, the issue really is one's own commitment to excellence in the pursuit of uh, quality in one's own uh, study and one's own ministry. Another question I'm often asked in terms of preparation is how should somebody prepare if they are going to go to college and then eventually to seminary, what kind of course of study should they have in undergraduate work? And I think just about anything is a good course of study in undergraduate work because the Bible addresses so many different areas of life. Whatever your area of study is, whatever your area major is in undergraduate work, the Lord will use that in some way to enhance your study of the Scriptures. I mean, those of us who are here at Preston City Bible Church can look around, and we've been impacted by the uh, ministry of someone such as Charlie Clough, who majored in mathematics and uh, has an advanced degree in meteorology. And yet just think of so much that insight that, that he brings to the text coming from that uh, mental framework of that mentality of science. That's one, thing, one of the things I appreciate about his, uh, his background and his study is most of us, most of the men that I know, and associate with who are who are pastors have a primarily a liberal arts background, and they just don't have that kind of training that that uh, Charlie Clough has. So that that's uh, important. Other areas of study, I think that if you study Latin, in fact, it's unfortunate that Latin's dropped out of so many curriculums, but Latin really helps prepare you for any kind of language study in the future. A study of philosophy, especially logic. I don't care too much for a lot of modern study of modern philosophy, philosophy from a post-Kantian perspective from about the 19th, early 19th century on. But it does have some value in teaching you the trends in cosmic thinking and, and worldliness. 
Also, some courses in history, English. A pastor needs to learn some things about good grammar and just how to write, how to read. Those are basic skills that are, are the same for Bible study as they are for any other form of literature. Uh, familiarity with computer and computer tools is also uh, important today. The pastor who does not familiarize himself with the vast array of computerized helps uh, today is truly missing out. It's like uh, he's trying to do everything on a bicycle instead of a high-speed racer. It's uh, doing it without the use of a computer really, truly limits your ability to do a lot of things because it takes you, you know, sometimes 20 or 30 times longer. I know that in uh, with the use of the various tools that I have on my computer, I can do in two or three hours what it took me two or three weeks to do when I was in seminary. And there are many things that you can do today that we couldn't even think about doing when I was in seminary simply because of the of the types of uh, tools that are available. I'll give you an example in English. Let's say we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We come to verse 13, and we say now, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is is love. Well, let's say you're teaching through that passage. You want to know, well, where else does Paul talk about faith, hope, and love in this triad in the same context? So you can set up a search in, in just in English Bible. This is pretty simple. Every place where faith, hope, and love are used in the Pauline epistles within ten words of each other. And in about two seconds, you have, you have that, that response. Furthermore, what you're also able to do today, if you think this way, and see, this is a problem that, that a challenge that I face, is that I wasn't taught to think this way when I was in seminary because you couldn't even do this kind of thing. For one, one of the things that we studied in the past in relationship to Second Peter, or, excuse me, First Peter 2, 1 and 2, is what's called an antecedent, um, a circumstantial participle, which provides the uh, the prerequisite for the command. You have a certain syntax structure in the Greek where you have an aorist participle that comes before an aorist imperative. What that means is that the action of the participle must take place before the action of the command. So let's say we're studying that passage in Second Peter one, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, and I want to find out every other place in the New Testament where you have an aorist participle preceding an aorist tense verb within, let's say, Ten words. You couldn't even do that ten, you know, twenty years ago. That was a kind of thing that a man, a scholar, would spend a lifetime studying, with just reading through his Greek New Testament over and over and over again, trying to find every example of that. And that maybe after ten or fifteen years, he might publish a doctoral dissertation. Well, now with computer tools, you can set up a, a search program like that, and in two seconds, get every place in the New Testament where that kind of grammatical structure is is found and that has its place but you have to learn to think differently to do that and if you go to seminary today uh, seminary should provide you with or you should be in a classroom and I understand that they uh, teach with using laptops and LCD projectors and everything else today showing the students how to get on the internet how to use some of these advanced tools and this just opens up all kinds of, of doors to studies that have uh, never even been envisioned before in the past. So this is the kind of thing that, 
that uh, is necessary. And so a pastor has to be willing to constantly update himself, go back to school, continuing education, and a congregation needs to be committed to that too. And it's all part of doing all things to the glory of God, a pursuit of excellence in any and every area. So pastors needs to be, need to be prepared. And just a final comment, there are several traps that pastors and, and uh, young men need to avoid. One is to watch out for imitation, becoming someone who imitates a mentor. Now, everybody does that, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're a surgeon, whether you're a carpenter. Whatever field you're in, I am sure that you find somebody who teaches you how to do something, and in those initial stages of growth, you do it like they did, because that's how you learn. But as you develop and grow, your own personality, your own abilities, your own skill uh, takes over, and you grow and mature on that basis. Unfortunately, there are people who, in all areas of pastoral ministry, uh, become very enchanted with the personality and the dynamics or style of a particular pastor. I see this in in um, many different areas with many different pastors that that I, I run into, and I see this a lot where they will, I see this with some pastors, they basically find some somebody who's got a big church, and they've got a, uh, a flourishing ministry, and they're well known for their, their, their preaching style, and what they'll do is they'll just memorize the, that guy's sermons, and then they'll, they'll teach it as their own. And they're just basically being, becoming a clone. And this, unfortunately, happens across the board in, in Christianity. So you have to watch out for imitation. Let the Holy Spirit develop your spiritual gift uh, and so that you can become useful for the Lord in terms of your own personality. And then, of course, as a young, young man seeking to go in the ministry, you ought to avoid rationalizations. And I hear that. I've referred to it already a little bit. But I hear men say, well, I don't want to go there because they do such and so. That they're, they, they're legalist. I heard that school's a little legalistic, so I don't want to go there. So rather than go somewhere where they'll get some good training and might have to put up with a small amount of legalism or something that they disagree with, they either won't go to seminary or they'll pick some place that's, that's really bad. It always amazes me how some people will strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And they'll choose not to go to some place for one small issue, and then they'll end up going someplace else where there's, you know, ten times the problems, but they just have made a small issue out of one other thing. So I've heard that before that, oh, well, if I go to that school, you know, they'll make me take a course in missions, or I'll have to take this Mickey Mouse course or that Mickey Mouse course. And that's part, all part of developing in any area of the life. I don't care what field you're in. You have to put up with a certain amount of training and a certain amount of study that you don't think is relevant or significant or important, and it's just downright boring, but that's just part of life. And we learn and we grow by going through those various stages. So that concludes my comments on the preparation of a pastor teacher. So back to Third John 1, 1. The elder, ha presbyteros. To, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, like Philemon, the epistle to Philemon, this epistle is the only other 
epistle of the New Testament addressed to an individual. Now, Timothy is addressed to an individual, Titus, but those were to be read to the congregations. Those had a broader application. There's a clear understanding that, that even though that's addressed specifically to an individual, it was to be read to a congregation and had a congregational uh, impact. But in terms of being just primarily a personal letter, uh, Philemon and Third John are the only two epistles that have a specific, specifically individual application. The name Gaius is a, was a common name in the Roman Empire. Uh, Caesar's, Julius Caesar's first name was Gaius, Gaius Julius Caesar. It was a common name. There is a Gaius of Corinth mentioned in Romans 16.23. There's a Gaius of Macedonia mentioned in Acts 19.29. There's a Gaius of Derby mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. So there are several different men by the name of Gaius. So we don't know who this was. We don't know where he lived. We have no information about him other than the fact that he was involved in a local church, and there seems to be to have been a problem, maybe a power play, uh, executed by a man named Diotrephes, who's mentioned in verse 9, that Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence among them. And so that is a, a, a reference to the church. And so from that we see that Paul is giving specific guidance to Gaius as to how to handle this situation where there is a an obvious division in the local congregation because of the uh, arrogance of Diotrephes. He calls Gaius his dear friend. This is not just a, a nice form of address, but this indicates that he has a close relationship with Gaius. Four times in this letter, he addresses Gaius as the beloved in verse, verses 1, again in verse 2, then in verse 5, and again in verse 11. So apparently John had a, had a relationship with this uh, Gaius. Perhaps Gaius had been in his congregation at one time. It's possible that Gaius was even a a pastor that had trained under John and had gone to this congregation, and the congregation had, had gone through some sort of split or division, and now Gaius was uh, was out in the cold. That certainly happens to pastors many times. They go to a congregation, and there's a congregational revolt against his authority, and the church splits, and uh, the pastor is out in the cold. But we don't know exactly, so we can't say, but it sure there's clear indication that there is this close friendship and affection between the Apostle John and Gaius. To reinforce this statement of calling him the beloved one, John then goes on to say, whom I love in the truth, whom I love in the truth. And here we have the Greek phrase, the preposition in, plus the dative of aletheia. N plus the dative of aletheia. Now, in the Greek, when you have a preposition, N plus a dative, E-N plus A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A, when you have this kind of a construction in the dative case, 
this frequently indicates an instrumental idea. So it would be better translated, whom I love by means of the truth, not in truth. That would be have an idea of sphere, but the idea of by means of truth. And the emphasis here is that love is conducted by means of truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. You can't separate love from truth. Now, this is not truth with a small t. This is truth with a capital T. That is the Word of God or Bible doctrine. Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. Uh, Father, sanctify them in truth. And the same kind of phrase there, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. There's all kinds of different truth in life. There's uh, mathematical truth. There's uh, truth related to uh, certain social functions. These are relative concepts of truth, and uh, we learn them in different ways and perceive them in different ways. But when we come to the Word of God, we're talking about a different category of truth, absolute truth that has been revealed from God and therefore is inerrant and infallible. It is on the, only on the basis of this kind of truth that we can have a genuine, true, uh, loving relationship because it's only on the basis of truth that there can be genuine love. When doctrine is violated then love is distorted. When doctrine is violated, love is distorted. If you compromise on doctrine at any point, then what happens is that will convert love, what you think is love, to selfishness. And this is one of the problems you see in all kinds of relationships is the kind of love that is really there is not a genuine, unselfish uh, love as we find demonstrated by Christ on the cross, but it is a love that is, um, when you strip away all of the externals, it is a love that is based on some sort of selfishness, what I'm going to get out of this relationship. And when a certain amount of stress or, excuse me, when a certain amount of external uh, pressure or adversity comes into that relationship, then the cracks become apparent and the flaws in the, in the love begin to uh, be seen. So I want to begin a study this morning on this concept of love and friendship. Love and friendship. And this morning we will just introduce the subject, and I have 12 points by way of introduction. Introduction to the doctrine of love and friendship. First point, friendship is based on love. Friendship is based on love. Now let me explain what I mean by friendship. There are different levels of friendship in life. For example, we have people who are just simple acquaintances. We know them, we recognize them, perhaps it was someone you grew up with, perhaps it's someone who lives down the street, someone you talk with a little more than just saying, hello, how are you? But it's not much more than that. The next level is perhaps professional colleagues or fellow students or coworkers, someone with whom you spend a lot of time, but you know them more than or at a deeper level than the guy down the street, but they are not what you would call an intimate friend, someone with whom you share uh, confidences. 
they are someone, though, with whom you spend a lot of time and you learn a lot about them within a certain uh, frame of reference. You can also have another level of friendship among fellow team players. There are certain jobs in certain situations in life, whether it's in sports or whether it's in uh, a, a particular career or perhaps even in the military, where a group of people spends a tremendous amount of time together and get to know each other and depend upon each other in many different ways. And so a very close, intimate relationship develops. And you find this, I think, especially in the military, people who have gone through extreme stress or, or, excuse me, extreme adversity together, they come out of that and even 5, 10, 15 years uh, later, even if they don't see each other in between, when they get together, there is a certain bond that they share because of the adversity they went through and surmounted together. That's a different level of, of uh, friendship. The subject that I'm addressing here is really a more intimate level of friendship, that circle of people whom we might consider to be our uh, closest friends, our confidence, people with whom we might share uh, things that we would not want to be necessarily become public knowledge, things, uh, people with whom we would, uh, we can relax and, uh, with and with whom we can spend, um, spend a lot of time and just be ourselves, so to speak, without uh, any sense of pretense or any uh, worry about uh, a confidence being betrayed. This is the kind of friendship that also undergirds a marriage or should undergird a marriage. So friendship, therefore, this category of friendship is based on love. Point number two, the kind of love that this is based on is, real, is, is, is the love triplex that I've developed in our understanding of the spiritual skills. The love triplex is made up of personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Let me put this up here as a chart. The foundation for the believer for all relationships, for any kind of love, this is the source of the kind of integrity needed for any kind of relationship is personal love for God the Father. It is that personal love for God the Father that helps us to uh, understand what integrity is. It is a personal love for God the Father that provides the basis and motivation for relationships with others. If your relationship with others is not based on that personal love for God, and instead it would be based on the attractiveness of that object or, God forbid, your own character, then what happens is when adversity comes, it is very easy for that love to fall apart and to fragment. For love to have an enduring value, to be able to handle any and all adversities, it must be based on an immutable object. Therefore, it is the personal love for God that supplies that foundation for all other categories of love. Personal love for God then becomes the basis for our impersonal love for others. Our impersonal love for others, especially impersonal love for all believers, as Jesus mandated in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as he loved us. 
Only as we come to understand God and his grace are we able to uh, have a uh, true impersonal love for others that is not based on who they are or what they do, but is based on the the unfailing character of God. Then on top of that, we build our personal love for others our personal love for others, that it must be grounded on an impersonal love because sooner or later the object of your personal love is going to disappoint you, is going to fail, is going to do something that that you don't like, going to do something to make you angry, and it could be something of an extreme nature. And the only way to handle that is through an impersonal love that is based on an immutable object. So we... All personal love, for it to have any virtue and any value, must be based on impersonal love, which in turn is based on personal love for God. Then the next stage is another category of personal love, is we have non-romantic friendship. Non-romantic friendship, that is based, uh, as we build this pyramid, that is based on personal love for others, which in turn is based on impersonal love for others. And then finally, we have that category of romantic love for a spouse. And that romantic love, is, if it is not based on these other elements, on non-romantic friendship, personal love for others, impersonal love for others, and personal love for God, then if those feelings aren't there, then it is going to collapse. And there are any number of things that happen over the course of someone's marriage where you may not have those same feelings that you had at one time in life. In fact, those romantic feelings uh, may disappear for any number of factors, and what enables you to move through that and to recover the kind of love that is necessary for a marriage to endure is if you have it grounded in a personal love for God the Father and in turn impersonal love for all mankind. That is how, that's the skill that God has provided for us so that we can handle disappointments, disenchantment, and various problems. Failure to base friendship. That's what we're talking about is not the romantic aspect right now, not romantic friendship, but just the kind of friendship that may occur between people of the same sex or just the opposite sex. Failure to base friendship on these spiritual skills will lead eventually to either a dilution of the relationship or you will compromise doctrine as a priority. One of those those two things happen. If you don't base friendship on these spiritual skills, you will either uh, have the relationship become diluted. For example, I can think of friends that that I grew up with, that I've known almost all my life, I'm sure you can too, that as I have become more focused on doctrine, I have spent less and less time with them simply because that wasn't their focus. That wasn't what drove them, and so it becomes a choice whether you're going to spend time with those people and enjoy their companionship and their friendship, but to do so, you know that eventually that is going to distract you from doctrine, so you have to make a decision as to what's more important. This is emphasized in a couple of passages of Scripture. For example, 2 Corinthians 6.14 
do not be bound together with unbelievers. Specifically, this is addressing marriage, but it has the same thing for close, intimate friendship. Same application. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Believers are not to be involved in close, intimate relationships with unbelievers. Why? 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. First Corinthians 15:33 Do not be deceived bad company corrupts good morals. So we have to be careful with whom we are intimately involved. Point number 3 There are stages to the development of capacity of love to a genuine capacity of love. Now I'm not addressing the fact that there are there is a kind of love that is possible for the unbeliever. But I am addressing the kind of love that is developed in the believer that's specifically listed as a fruit or product of God the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of love that Jesus emphasized in John 13, 34, and 35, that it is by this that all men will know that you are my disciples. A quality of love that cannot be, uh, that cannot be counterfeited and by the unbeliever. It begins with personal love for God the Father, and then that in turn develops impersonal love for all mankind, then personal love for others in the two categories of friendship and then romantic love. So point number four, friendship, for friendship and romantic love to be successful, they must be based on personal love for God the Father. If you are a believer... For friendship and romantic love to be successful, it must be based on a personal love for God the Father. I'm going to build a case here. Point number four, friendship and romantic love. For friendship and romantic love to be successful, they must be built on a personal love for God the Father. To love God, you have to, you can't love whom you don't know. To love God, you have to come to know God. To know God, you have to study His Word. It is only through learning the Word of God and applying it under the teaching ministry and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that you can develop capacity for love for God the Father. So, point number four, friendship and romantic love must be based on personal love for God the Father. Point number five, personal love for God the Father can only come from a development of integrity in the soul through spiritual growth. Personal love for God the Father can only come from a development of integrity in the soul through spiritual growth. Part of what John is including with the idea of truth here is the idea of integrity. Love cannot be separated from truth or integrity. So for so therefore personal love for God the Father can only come as integrity in the soul is developed through spiritual growth. Point number six, impersonal love is based on integrity and objectivity. See, you have to have objectivity to have real love. You have to be able to understand the person you're loving as they really are. If you don't understand them as they are, then your love is flawed. It's not based on the truth. It's based on some 
uh, flawed view of reality. You're living in some sort of neurotic dream world. You're living on some basis of, of denial of reality. And unfortunately, that's what characterizes a lot of marriages because the relationship is so messed up or people are not living on the basis of doctrine that the only way they can survive together or stay together is by somehow uh, ignoring, denying the truth of what's really going on in the life of the other person. But for there to be real, genuine love, it's got to be based on truth, and truth involves integrity and objectivity. So impersonal love uh, is based on integrity and objectivity, which in turn can come only through spiritual growth. Point number seven, integrity and objectivity can only come from orientation to reality. Integrity and objectivity can only come from orientation to reality. Failure to orient to reality can lead to disillusionment and disenchantment. You you always find this in some young couple. They get starry-eyed over each other and fall in love, and then they get married, and then two years down the road they discover something about the person they married, and they become disillusioned and disenchanted. What happens is that relationship wasn't really grounded on, on any kind of any use of spiritual skills. It wasn't grounded in personal love for God or impersonal love for all mankind. Uh, integrity and objectivity weren't there from the beginning. And I guess this is what they mean by the phrase blinded by love. They're just totally divorced from reality, in love with the idea of love, in love with the feelings engendered by being with this other person, but they do not have a, a genuine appreciation for reality. And this leads to point number eight, which is a definition of reality. Reality is defined by God. It's revealed in his word and perceived through the grace learning spiral that we have studied. Let me refresh your thinking on the grace learning spiral. This is God's grace system for learning doctrine. Pastor teacher communicates the word. The Word is made understandable to the individual through the Holy Spirit, and because we possess a a human spirit, we can understand God's Word. At that point, we have to make a decision, and that decision, either positive or negative, to understand it. See, you can't believe something you don't understand. You have to think about it. You have to go home and not just be satisfied with the fact that you wrote down a bunch of principles in your notebook, But go home and think about these things. That's what the Old Testament referred to as meditation. That is, thinking about what the Word of God has said and what you have learned and letting the Holy Spirit use that in your life. So first of all, you have to uh, exercise a little positive volition to understand it. And then, again, you have to decide whether or not you will believe it. Once you uh, understand it, it becomes gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S, that is academic knowledge. Once you believe it, then God the Holy Spirit converts it to epinosis and stores it in your heart. That is the cardia in the Greek, K-A-R-D-I-A, which is the innermost sphere of thought. There are two arenas of thought. You can look at them like a two concentric circles. The outer realm is called the noose in the Bible. The outer circle called the noose, N-O-U-S, 
called the noose in the inner area of the heart. And when that is convert, when doctrine is converted into epinosis, then it becomes usable doctrine. That's the next use of volition. You have to decide whether or not you will apply the doctrine to different areas of life. So only on the basis of learning doctrine under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God can we orient to reality. That is the GLS. You know, today it's very popular to get some kind of GPS system in your car, global positioning satellite. Now, those of you who don't know, that, that allows you to instantly orient your position wherever your, your receptor is based on a satellite, and it will instantly identify where you're located. And so a GPS orients you to geographical reality, and the GLS orients you to spiritual reality. So it's only on the basis of taking in the Word of God that you can have a true perception of other people. See, your friends, whoever they are, are dirty, rotten sinners. Your husband, your wife, has a totally depraved nature. They are a fallen creature. That means that their sin nature is capable of doing just about anything that can shock you. And they just might. The only way to overcome that is through grace. That's why the precursor to personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind is grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. If you don't understand grace, you can't love someone. Because that's what grace that's what love is based on is unmerited or undeserved favor. It is an understanding of the cross that we don't do anything to deserve or merit the love of God. It is freely given. And that is the kind of love that characterizes a true friendship. Now, point number nine. I can already hear somebody saying, well, wait a minute. I know unbelievers who have great friendships. I even have a very close friend who's a, a carnal believer. Aren't they capable of friendship? Well, certainly. It is a what I would call a pseudo-friendship. It's not a genuine friendship. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that unbelievers and carnal believers can produce pseudo-friendships that can be quite wonderful for them? Is that The reason I say that is only a friendship based on the integrity of God is a real friendship. If you're an advancing believer, other friendships, friendships with carnal believers, friendships with unbelievers, will always lack something. There'll always be something missing because at the very core of your existence, what matters is your relationship to God and the truth of God's Word. And if that can't be shared with that other person, then the most important arena of life is missing in that relationship. You may enjoy many other things. You may enjoy many, uh, uh, many activities in common. You may have many shared opinions and many shared experiences. But a friendship with an unbeliever or a carnal believer will always lack something and may weaken or be destroyed under adversity because the foundation is not the Word of God and personal love for God the Father. Now remember, background for this, let's think about this logically. Everybody has a sin nature. Put our diagram of the sin nature up here. 
Now, that sin nature produces works in two areas. First of all, personal sins. These are areas, activities, thoughts, sins of the tongue, specifically identified as sin in the Scripture. That's from our area of of, um, area of weakness. Then from our area of strength, we produce human good. Human good is, is a form of human virtue. It is all that the, the only thing the unbeliever can do is produce from the sin nature. He is spiritually dead. He is totally depraved. He can produce nothing of eternal value or spiritual value. That's the definition of being a fallen creature. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He can't obey God. If he does obey, uh, obey God in terms of morality, it comes from human good. Therefore, all love, all honor, all friendship that comes from an unbeliever comes from what area? It's not personal sin. There's only other, one other area it can come from, and that's the area of human good. It is, and this is, and human good produces a tremendous amount of morality, which is the application of establishment truth for the unbeliever. And this can provide a, a, a basis for a certain level of stability in relationships and in society. But it is not the kind of love and friendship that is to characterize a believer. It is not the same kind of love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. The works of the flesh are antithetical to the works of the Holy Spirit, and eventually, through adversity, the uh, stress fractures will occur because the sin nature always converts the outside pressure of adversity into the internal pressure of stress in the soul. So these are the only two areas. Therefore, if you are involved in a relationship with an unbeliever, are a carnal believer, where is their love and friendship coming from? It can only come from one place, and that is their, their area of strength and human good. So this is why I say that unbelievers and carnal believers can only produce a pseudo-friendship, and this is what happens in a marriage. If a marriage is going to fall apart, if those two individuals are not conscientiously walking by the Spirit and applying the Word of God and growing together uh, spiritually. Because what's going to happen is something will take place that's going to put outside pressure on that marriage. And if there's no doctrine and if the Holy Spirit is not active in the life of those two individuals, what's going to happen is fragmentation in the souls of the two people involved, and that eventually is going to lead to a fragmentation of, of the marriage. And this is why it is so important in a Christian marriage for both individuals to keep doctrine as the number one priority. It is a sure prescription for failure otherwise. Point number 10. For love toward others, whether it's romantic love or whether it's friendship love, for love toward others to function consistently and accurately, it must be based on reality. Since only Bible doctrine provides a framework for reality, it's only on the basis of doctrine that there can be real and genuine love. This is why John says that we love by means of the truth. 
Point number 11. Under doctrine, we learn that we are all sinners, we are all fallible, we are all flawed. No matter how flawed or fallible the object of your love may be, only a love based on the character, the integrity of God can overcome those flaws. Not by denying them, but by accepting them in terms of reality. Not by saying, oh, well, the person I love really doesn't have that problem. The person that I love really isn't an alcoholic. The person that I love really doesn't have problems with drugs. The person that I love really doesn't have a problem uh, with, uh, with lying. No, you can accept them for who and what they are in terms of reality, and that can be handled on the basis of personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. Therefore, conclusion, genuine love of any category must be based on doctrine and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Genuine love in any category must be based on doctrine and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, that love is doomed to failure. So John says to the beloved Gaius, whom I love by means of the truth. Truth is the embodiment of doctrine it is the absolute truth revealed by God in the Scriptures and is the foundation for handling every single situation in life. Next time we'll come back, we'll expand our understanding of the uh, doctrine of friendship love, and we will also look at the doctrine of loyalty. What is loyalty? What is the role of loyalty in friendship, and how can people become distorted in the area of loyalty and, and friendship, which actually destroys friendship. It's a pseudo, a pseudo loyalty can destroy a, a true friendship with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that we are able to be enlightened by your word through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that it is only on the basis of your word that we can uh, grasp truth and that we can understand uh, things as they actually are. Father, we thank you that you have provided an eternal solution to the problem of sin, and that is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that sure and certain. If this applies to you, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Simply believe what the Scripture promises, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and that by accepting that on your behalf, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would uh, drive home the things that we have studied today, uh, help us to uh, understand them as we meditate on them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.